Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. You can view the live stream on Facebook at Mother Miriam Live. Now, here's Mother Miriam. Hello, beloved family. How are you? We're getting closer to Lent, and I hope that you're not waiting until Ash Wednesday or Lent to um, uh, figure out what you're going to do and um, to draw your heart closer to our Savior, to prepare um, to spend 40 days with him in the wilderness. Uh, That was part of his suffering for us. And um, and part of his blood shed for us. Um, and so I read an article, um, at least part of it, uh, some days ago. And um, it's called Emptying the Cross of Its Power. It's written by Alan Fimister and uh, sent uh, by the, the voice of the family, who every time I mention them, I, I cannot recommend voice of the family uh, highly enough. You can subscribe to them uh, by email. You can support them, um, and they're worth worthy of every penny of support. They're outstanding, and they, like we, exist for the restoration of God's design for the family. Um, I'm going to try to read this through um, and uh, get through what I didn't read last time. It's it's absolutely outstanding. Emptying the cross of its power. And uh, the statement that it begins with is from the Athanasius Creed. Uh, Athanasian Creed, whosoever would be saved before all else, it is necessary that he profess the Catholic faith. Which faith? Unless he profess whole and entire with all its parts, he will most certainly perish everlastingly. Now, many people are going to be offended by that, including Catholics. Well, my family's Protestant, or I grew up Protestant, or I know some very good people uh, who are um, or my Jewish friends, or Muslim, good, holy Muslim people. I know all those people, too. But has the faith changed in 2,000 years? It has not. The article uh, continues. The year 1960 was a pivotal one in the history of the church militant. That's the church on earth, militant. In purgatory, the church suffering. In heaven, the church triumphant. Famously, Sister, Lu- uh, Sister Lucia of Fatima said that the third secret of Fatima should not be made known until that year. But when Pope John XXIII opened it, he pronounced it not for our time and put it away. I think that was a tragic situation. Our Lady said it was for that time, and Pope John XXIII made a counter uh, decision The text of the secret released in the year 2000 contains an allegorical description of a devastated city built upon a mountain and the martyrdom of the remnant of the church. With the benefit of hindsight, not a few people have concluded that it did refer to our time after all. The position of the church in Western societies in 1960 was, if not quite dominant, commanding in the light of what followed 
it is hard not to compare it to our Lord's own triumphal entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week. Nevertheless, it was a position achieved over the previous 80 years by iron discipline and doctrinal purity. In 1960, the church was in danger of becoming the victim of its own success. The tight-knit Catholic areas which has sustained the faith were breaking up, perhaps sometimes by hostile design, but in many cases simply as a result of the prosperity and success of the communities themselves. In order to achieve the social kingship of Christ, the faithful needed at one and the same time to preserve the traditions by which the faith had been handed down to them, to transcend any ethnic particularism by which the evangelization of the rest of society might have been impaired, and to maintain the fidelity of heart and mind which had brought them to the brink of possible restoration. I'm reading this a bit quickly, beloved, because I want to get through it today. But if you want to slowly read and take in of this uh, this article, simply uh, do an online search for Emptying the Cross of Its Power. Let me get back to where I was. Um, <clears throat> this maneuver was not achieved, and at the end of Holy Week, the flock was scattered Before the end, the Catechism explains, the Church must pass through a religious deception, offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. Catechism, our current Catechism, number 675. And we're in it now. The Church must pass through a religious deception, offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. We are in a state of apostasy now, beloved. This is not yet a persecution of blood and death, but of craft and subtlety, such as worried St. John Newman, who lived in the 1850s. Pope Benedict XVI conceded that in the 1960s, the Church entered a deep trouble, a deep double crisis, which destroyed the faithful's apostolic zeal, and the willingness of Catholics to adhere to the canons of their own religion, the bewildered laity began to ask themselves, as the retired pontiff explained, why should one try to convince the people to accept the Christian faith when they can be saved even without it? That's the message being given today, even from the Vatican on down, but also for Christians an issue emerged. This is from Pope Benedict. The obligatory nature of the faith and its way of life began to seem uncertain and problematic. If there are those who can save themselves in other ways, Pope Emeritus Benedict said, if there are those who can save themselves in other ways, it is not clear in the final analysis why the Christian himself is bound by the requirements of the Christian faith and its morals. If faith and salvation are no longer interdependent, faith itself becomes unmotivated, end quote. In remarks reminiscent of the closing scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Pope Benedict reassures us that we have top men working on the problem, so we need not worry too much. I can't imagine that coming from Pope Benedict. Fortunately, we have already had top men look at the question for us, 
for a couple of millennia. Um, Friar, uh, this is a testimony of uh, Bartolomeo de Capua at the hearing of the case for the canonization of St. Thomas in 1319. He says, Friar um, uh, Giacomo de Viterbo, I, I know I've messed that name up, Archbishop of Naples, often said to me that he believed in accordance with the faith and the Holy Spirit that our Savior had sent as doctor of truth to illuminate the world and the universal church. First, the Apostle Paul, then Augustine, and finally in these latest days, Friar Thomas, whom, Thomas Aquinas, whom he believed no one could succeed until the end of the world. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, St. Paul reminds us, quote, By grace you are saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, for it is the gift of God, not of works, that no man may glory. It is not that works are unnecessary for salvation. They are necessary. But nothing done prior to the reception of the faith can be meritorious in the sight of God. For without faith it is impossible to please God. As our Lord tells the apostles immediately before the ascension, Go ye into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. We may not boast because this saving proclamation is not owed to us. It is a free pardon restoring us to the favor of the eternal king. Paul wrote to the Romans, How then? Shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Or how shall they believe him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? If it were possible, as the confused, scattered, and dwindling Catholics of the early 21st century so often suppose, if it were possible for good people to be saved, and only unimaginably wicked people to be lost, and even then repentance without belief would be enough to save the day, then salvation would be essentially by works. The necessity of faith, of proclamation, guarantees the gratuity of salvation and of the supernatural order. It guarantees that the one justified apprehends that gratuity. No one is saved by their goodness. There is no one without sin. Beloved, there is not a soul that does not deserve hell. It is by the free gift of God that we are saved. By his death and resurrection. By repentance and giving our life to him and trusting him to be the only sacrifice that God has accepted. There's the music for our first break, beloved. I think we've gotten halfway through this and hopefully we'll continue and complete it um, in the second segment. And uh, the second break, um, we'll begin our half hour where you can call in with anything on your heart, toll free, 1-877-511-5483 or email at mother at thestationofthecross.com. We'll be right back.
The Gospels record many instances of our Lord going off to a secluded place to pray, so we can be sure that finding a quiet place for prayer is vital for us as well. Located in the serene setting of Cranberry, Pennsylvania, the St. Thomas More House of Prayer is the perfect place to deepen your prayer life or to hold a group retreat. The St. Thomas More House of Prayer is a Catholic retreat center whose mission is to pray the Liturgy of the Hours and spread this beautiful prayer of the Church. Book a visit or learn more by going to liturgyofthehours.org or call us at 814-676-1910. That's 814-676-1910. the time from listeners who discovered the station by seeing a Tri-God bumper magnet in traffic. You can request a free bumper magnet and start evangelizing just by driving around town. Go to thestationofthecross.com and click on promotional material under the About tab. There you can request a magnet for your listening area. We even have one for the iCatholic Radio mobile app. Request yours today. We've lost the vocabulary for spiritual struggle. You know, when the more draconian elements of the COVID interruption were rolled back, there were a number of dioceses whose rallying cry was, it's time to come back to the table. No, it isn't. It's time to come back to Calvary. Not even the Italians say we've sinned, let's eat. The Catholic Current, 5 p.m. Eastern, from the Station of the Cross and on the iCatholic Radio mobile app. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. We are right in the middle of a an article Um on um oh my goodness now let me get the title again it's from um um voice of the family emptying the cross of its power and um we just quoted ephesians 2 8 and 9 which says we're saved by grace through faith not of works we're not saved by our works but we're saved unto good works and works apart from faith is dead we are saved by uh, faith working through love, Paul wrote to the Galatians. So we must know that it's not a matter of our being good enough. No one is good enough. Um, uh, it's a gift, and we must understand that. Uh, and the article continues by saying, this is a matter of no small importance, for the evil one was happy to accept participation in the divine nature. He just would not accept it as gratuitous, it is not enough that man accepts God as the object of supernatural beatitude. He must accept that this is a gift to which man or angel has no right, either as sinner or simply as an intellectual creature. The enemy fell, desiring as his last end of beatitude something which he could attain by the virtue of his own nature, turning his appetite away from supernatural beatitude which is attained by God's grace. Those who receive the saving proclamation of the gospel are disposed 
to that justice when aroused and aided by divine grace, receiving faith by hearing, they are moved freely toward God, believing to be true what has been divinely revealed and promised, especially that the sinner is justified by God by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's straight from the Council of Trent's decree on justification. It would not be surprising if this heresy, which has so devastated the church, were persecution of craft and subtlety, the great religious deception prepared for the last days, for it must be a lie very dear to the enemy of our race. Pius X feared that the errors of his times were a foretaste and perhaps the beginning of those evils which are reserved for the last days. He declared modernism the synthesis of all heresies because it substitutes religious sentiment for saving faith. The Catholic must hold that faith is a genuine assent of the intellect to truth received by hearing from an external source by which assent because of the authority of the supremely truthful God, we believe to be true that which has been revealed and attested to by a personal God, our Creator and Lord. For the modernist, in contrast, faith is a blind sentiment of religion, welling up from the depths of the subconscious under the impulse of the heart and the motion of a well-trained, of a will-trained to mor- morality. This sentiment, they maintain, is inherent to all intellectual creatures because the modernist and their prince destroy, and you know their prince is Satan himself, destroy the gratuity of the supernatural order since God, they say, cannot create intellectual beings without ordering and calling them to the beatific vision. That's from Humanae uh, Generis Pope Pius XII. Not only do these errors rage unimpeded through the church today, but in most places they are actually what goes by the name of Catholic theology. Not only does modernism remove all motivation for missionary activity, it actually deters it, because if it is not actual, if it is not actually the Catholic faith which saves us, then the articles of faith are not the terms of our pardon, but our burdensome precepts of divine positive law, of which, had we remained ignorant, we would have been free. For the Catholic, as St. Paul explains, if I preach the gospel, it is no glory to me, for a necessity lieth upon me. For woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. The gospel is something which we simply cannot know unless we are told. If we are supposed it, If we supposed it to consist in truth knowable by unaided reason, it would not save us. If we believed the good news could be proven, neither we nor those receiving such a false proclamation would receive any good from it. Preach the gospel, not in wisdom of speech, Paul says, lest the cross of Christ should be made void. For the modernists and the Pharisee, the proclamation is super supererogatory, is a supererogatory act beneficial to the one who does it, but positively harmful for the recipient. In fact, thus misconceived, it is ruinous for both. As our Lord himself explains, 
speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you go around about sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him a child of hell, twofold more than yourselves. I'm concerned that this statement can be repeated from much that is coming out of the Vatican today. Woe to you, hypocrites, because you go around about the sea and the land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him the child of hell, twofold more than yourselves. I think fiducia supplicants can fit into that description. In fact, given the opposition which the church still provokes, for the enemy knows that the gates of hell will not prevail, few of today's scribes bestir themselves to cross land and sea, except perhaps for a conference of like-minded apostates. Our Lord says in John chapter 10, the hireling said, he that is not the shepherd, rather the hireling and he that is not the shepherd, whose own sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and flieth. And the wolf casteth and scattereth the sheep, and the hireling fleeth, because he is a hireling, and he hath no care for the sheep. The natural and divine laws cannot be separated, because the first requirement of the natural law is to worship God in the manner he has appointed, to discover and embrace the divine law just as the one for whom the cross has been emptied of its power imagines that if only he had never heard the gospel, his life would be so much easier. So also he begins to conceive of even the precepts of the natural law as mere rules, which the church might change and about which the creator could surely not be too punctilious. Heroism, Walter Casper reassures us is not for the average Christian. That's straight from the mouth of the enemy. Leo XIII cannot agree. For though man is able by the right use of reason to know and to obey certain principles, this is Leo XIII speaking, certain principles of the natural law, but though he should know them all and keep them inviolate through life, and even this is impossible without the aid of grace of our Redeemer, Still, it is vain for anyone without faith to promise himself eternal salvation. And that faith demands of us everything. Luke chapter 14, our Lord says, If any man come to me, the faith demands of us everything. If any man comes to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever doth carry, doth not carry his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's no point in interpreting that. Those are the words from our Savior, beloved. You mean he wants me to hate my mother and father and sister and brother? What he wants you to do is love him above all things with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength so that in comparison to that love, it seems that you hate your mother and father and everyone else. It's in comparison to the love of God that you have, must choose them over father, mother, sister, and brother, and everyone else. Faith and works are necessary for salvation, but works without faith are empty, and faith without works is dead. 
That's the end of the article. And beloved, in my 18 Protestant years, my pastor would preach, faith without works is dead. Works are the fruit of faith, and you shall know them by their works. But they would shy away from saying that works are necessary. But they are necessary. But they are necessary. Heaven is a gift. It is a gift that we attain by faith through works, not apart from works. Do our works earn us heaven? Absolutely not. But can we get heaven without our works? Absolutely not. I've given the example before of a high school boy who wants to go to a very expensive college, and the parents say, we will give you the money for this college, um, but we require this of you during your last year in high school. Obey your parents. Don't beat up your sister. Uh, be in by midnight. Clean up your room on Saturday. They give him a whole and maintain a B-plus average because they know what he can do if he strives. And at the end of the year, if he does all of that, will he have earned $100,000 for college? Absolutely not. If the only thing you do need to do as a child is to earn $100,000 is to obey what your parents should be telling you anyway, it'd be ridiculous. The money is still a gift, but you receive the gift through obedience to your parents' commands. And if you don't obey, you forfeit the gift. There's no way in a million lifetimes that we could earn heaven. It's a free gift of God. But he requires of us during our time on earth to keep the Ten Commandments, to love God, to not steal, to not lie, to not kill, all of that. If we keep the commandments, have we earned heaven? Absolutely not. It remains a gift. But if we refuse to keep them, then we forfeit heaven. A gift can be received or refused. And that is what God has left us. He has paid the only price on the cross that could suffice for our salvation. The price of the blood of the sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Not our blood or the blood of all the millions and billions and billions of people that have been born uh, through history can suffice. Only the blood of the sinless Son of God could take away the sin of the world and your sin and mine if we put our trust in him. And then do we live a good life? Yes. To earn salvation? No. To not forfeit it. And we live it by the grace of God because apart from him, we can do absolutely nothing. There's our second break, beloved. And we're up against our half hour when we'll have... um, Uh, Our lines are open. We'll have a full half hour for calls and emails. um, And whatever's on your heart, toll free. The number is 1-877-511-5483 or email at mother at thestationofthecross.com and we'll be right back. God. Beloved, this is Mother Miriam. 
Many of you are familiar with Mother Miriam Live, but I wonder if you have listened to some of the other programs from the Station of the Cross, such as The Catholic Current. Father Robert McTague discusses important topics in the church and in the world each weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern. You can listen anytime to The Catholic Current as a podcast on the iCatholic Radio mobile app. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Have you ever thought, well, why can't a prayer at a Catholic Mass cause the Holy Spirit to come upon the bread and wine and thus turn it into the actual body and blood of Jesus? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, remember, three of the most magnificent miracles were a result of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone or something such as the Holy Spirit came upon the face of the deep and God created the world. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she brought forth Jesus in her womb. Second, a boatload of scriptural support, such as 1 Corinthians 10, 16, which says the cup of blessing which we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. And thirdly, my honest reflection, your transformation after a prayer for conversion was not and is not noticeable in the human eye. So then why do you reject a prayer which transforms bread and wine into Jesus' body and blood? I know the reason, just a whole bunch of people have told you that. What you're offering and giving to me, you deserve to get back because you're offering more than I can give. I learned so much through the station on the cross. I listen to the radio station daily and I absolutely love it. I was attending the chapel and places like that and through your programs I was able to find out how other Protestants had come back into the Catholic Church. God bless the station of the cross. Donate today at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. We have a whole half hour to ourselves. I love this time where we can talk back and forth. Our lines are open. Again, the toll-free number 1-877-511-5483 or email at mother at the station of the cross.com. We have an email from actually, um, yes, we promised to take this first up today. I, we began it yesterday Um and we, uh, it was the end of the program, so I said I would take it first up today. It's written uh, anonymously, um, and it, having read through the email by a woman, Dear Mother Miriam, I am engaged to my fiancé, and we have our wedding date set for October of this year. When he initially proposed to me months ago, my family was supportive reluctantly of the decision for us to get engaged. There's been a particular tension between him and my sister since we met. Now, you're not giving me the reason why your family was supportive reluctantly. Um, I don't know if you're Catholic. I don't know if he's Catholic. I don't know what the reluctance is. And you say there's a particular tension between him and your sister since you met him. Uh, the email goes on to say, when he would visit the house, my sister refused to say hello to him or acknowledge him at all for several years. That's a long time. Um, it, it would be good 
dear one, if you had given me some kind of reason for this. Um, Though things seemed to get better recently, there was an incident in which my fiancé said something that offended my sister, and she told my mother. My fiancé felt like my sister went behind her back with this maliciously and got very angry. My fiancé felt like my sister went behind her back or his back with this maliciously and got very angry. So your fiancé got angry. Due to the bad nature of the relationship they had previously, my fiancé asked me to ask her not to be my maid of honor. Well, he has no right to do that. If he doesn't have the maturity, number one, to reconcile with her, he cannot ask you. uh, I mean, he can, he did, but that's not reasonable. Um, She says, I was completely distraught when he asked this of me, and I expressed to him that I believed it was wrong and would cause more problems. He convinced me to ask her, however. Well, I wouldn't marry a man that convinced you to ask your sister not to be your maid of honor because he's going to be controlling your life. On what basis? So you're not giving me information. On what basis did he convince you? That has to be huge to not ask your sister to be the maid of honor. I mean, that would break up your whole family. Um, And she writes, well, my mother became irate two and two is four, with me for this decision. I don't blame her. And I now realize it was completely wrong. I apologized profusely to my whole family and confessed what I did in confession because I believe I carried out revenge unjustly. Well, you carried out your fiancé's revenge. My sister is now refusing to attend the wedding at all, and my mother says that she will not attend either if my sister doesn't attend. My father seems more forgiving in the matter. My family told me they believe my fiancé is controlling me. I think they're right. And that he has driven a wedge in the family. That seems right also. I love my fiancé dearly, and I wish to marry him. However, I do not know how to resolve the awful situation that has arisen from all of this. I'll tell you straight off. I, I, I know there's still more of your email. I don't believe you should marry him. He needs to mature. Um, and um, you cannot resolve this situation. Your fiancé is the only one that has any chance of resolving this by humbly apologizing before your entire family for the disagreement he has with your sister and for the what he convinced you to do. He needs to apologize for that. He needs to apologize for having that dominion over you. Um, You can't reconcile this. The only way is if your boyfriend, your fiancé, has a change of heart and can mature to do what is right. She says, I am still sincerely sorry and willing to try and reconcile with my sister and the rest of the family, and so is my fiancé. Well, um, but you've done what you can. Uh, If your fiancé is willing, let him do it. Bring the family together with you, but you don't speak. Your fiancé is the one that has to completely apologize for his um, hard-heartedness, for his misjudgment, for his poor attitude toward your sister, and for his um, misleading and misguiding you and promise to be a better husband and son-in-law and brother-in-law. 
She says, it seems that now, however, I am unable to speak to my mother or sister productively. You're not going to be able to. You've done what you can. It's up if your fiancé wishes to make amends, as you say he is. That's what has to happen. Conversations these days end in yelling. Well, if they end in yelling, that they are void of humility and sincerity. If you're truly sincere, there'd be no yelling. Um, and she says, please offer your best advice, Mother God bless. Well, again, I don't know if you're Catholic. I don't know if he's Catholic. I don't know why your family is reluctant about the marriage. And I don't know what is between your sister and your fiancé. So I can't offer very much except to say that um, it is completely 100% on your fiancé now to call the family, to ask them for the grace to come together and meet with him, with you there, but you must not say a single word. He must do all the apology with no excuses. He must humble himself and apologize. And if they counter him, his attitude must not be to fight or yell. He must not even start that if he's going to do that. He must listen to them and understand where they're coming from and respect it. This doesn't sound like a marriage that's going to do well right now, and it's not going to last unless he grows up, unless there's reconciliation with your family. We have an email from Jesse who writes, Can a deacon officiate at a Catholic wedding? I did not think so, but this past weekend I saw pictures from a wedding in which the groom's father a Catholic deacon presided over the wedding ceremony without a priest. Is that wedding valid? Yes, it is. A deacon can officiate over a Catholic wedding. He cannot uh, perform a mass. He cannot celebrate mass, but he can officiate. In a Catholic wedding, it's really the couple, the uh, uh, the bridegroom and the and the uh, bride who officiate one to another. But there must be three witnesses: one from the church one from the groom's side, one from the wife's side. So perhaps uh, a deacon is fine and a a best man and a maid of honor. Those three would be just fine. You have the three witnesses, and again, uh, it's the couple who exchange that sacrament, and the deacon can officiate, but not celebrate Mass. We have an email from Anonymous who says, I was wondering if you may be able to offer your thoughts on this news article. And the article is is titled, New Leader of LBGTQ Plus Catholic Groups Seek to Help the Queer Faithful Find a Welcoming Home. Well, I didn't read the article, but... It seems that, the, I will if I need to, but it seems like that title um, tells me enough about what's going on. And the anonymous uh, individual says, my questions, where is this LGBTQ fascination with Catholicism coming from? If these people are truly gay and so very proud of it as they suggest, and I'm guessing that's all in the article, haven't they already rejected God in living that lifestyle? Of course they have. Why the insistence on being Catholic rather than just joining another church that accepts that sort of thing? Um, The fascination, uh, my dear one, is in, um, in the heart of Satan 
who is not interested in having falsehood go elsewhere, but he's interested in having the smoke of Satan, falsehood, enter the very church Christ established to kill Christianity, kill the church. So the fascination comes strictly from Satan, from uh, disordered um, individuals who are not looking to worship God or change their lives and conform with the gospel. They're looking to bring such diabolical disorientation into the only church that our Lord established, which is the Catholic Church. Um, uh, The insistence on being Catholic is rather to spit in God's face and do their own thing. Question two, how can one claim a desire to honor God while also desecrating the front of a church with an LGBTQ banner as depicted in the photo contained within the article? Is there any way to respond charitably to these people? Well, they may claim a desire to honor God, but they grossly dishonor him. Um, It's the priest who is responsible for this, and I believe should be removed from the priesthood. Um, The sheep can do whatever they want, and they'd be scattered all over the place. But it's the shepherd who's allowing this, and that means that priest is bringing um, falsehood into the church, um, gross sin into the church. He has lost his faith. He is no longer uh, being faithful to his own vows to teach the faith. And he needs to be removed. And so um, one cannot, they can claim a desire to honor God while desecrating the front of a church with that banner. Uh, They can claim it, but it's false claim. Uh, They can argue with you, but hopefully we need to pray for them that any uh, fraction of the conscience God has given them is still within them and that they can repent and reform. We have um, an email from Deborah who writes, Dear Mother, recently I heard you speak about changes in the way the church presents itself. You were talking about the conversion between Ben Shapiro and Bishop Barron, the conversation between Ben Shapiro and Bishop Barron. Um, I recall that, but I did not express it as change in the way the church presents itself. The church has not changed in 2,000 years, will not, and cannot. Bishops and individuals within the church can change and speak about the church falsely, but it's not the church um, that has changed the way it presents itself. It is false teachers and those who have lost their faith. And so the conversation between Ben Shapiro and Bishop Barron involved The question on Ben Shapiro, an Orthodox Jew, uh, in an interview with Bishop Barron, his question to Bishop Barron, is he going to hell because he doesn't believe in Jesus? That's Ben's legitimate question based on what Catholics teach. And tragically, Bishop Barron said, no, 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 he's not the only way, Jesus, he's the preferred way. Well, that's straight heresy. And Bishop Barron is going to be accountable, already is accountable to God for the effect that had on Ben Shapiro's soul and others who listened. 
And then Deborah says this. So I wondered, how did it come to be that any motivation, suggestion, or requirement for conversion and fidelity to our Lord become unnecessary and commonplace? It hasn't, honey. It hasn't. It hasn't. That's simply Bishop Barron's um, own apostasy. Whether he is apostatized fully, I'm not saying that. But in the matter of salvation, what he said to Ben Shapiro, that is false. And it is apostasy from the truth of salvation. Um, We'll continue with your email, Deborah, as soon as we come back from the break. It'll be our last segment. We'll have 10 minutes and still time for those who wish to call in with anything on their heart, toll free. 1-877-511-5483 one 511 and we'll be right back. Never, ever get discouraged because of past failings. But to uh, renew our commitment to our Lord today, serve Him with greater fidelity, zeal, generosity, you know, to uh, put into practice our good resolutions, that perhaps made before but haven't kept yet. Good, worthy resolutions, not just avoiding sin, but to uh, practice a particular virtue we need most. Humility, patience, charity, mercy. So let us um, be mindful of this important truth that time is so short and our Lord is coming for us and it could be any moment. And uh, in the meanwhile, do what St. Francis advises. Brethren, While we have time, let us do good. That's Sermons for Everyday Living from 6 to 7 a.m. Eastern on the Station of the Cross. Are you looking for a simple, creative, and easy way to contribute to the Station of the Cross? Why not consider a transfer of stock or donating a mutual fund to gift to help support us in our work of evangelization? Transferring a gift of long-term appreciated stocks, those owned for more than one year, can provide significant tax advantages by allowing you to deduct the fair market value while paying no capital gain tax. Today, most stock transfers are easily made electronically from your broker. Just call us at 1-877-888-6279. That's 1-877-888-6279. Your broker will need to indicate the number of shares being transferred and the QCIP number of the shares. May God bless you for considering a gift to the Station of the Cross so that we can continue proclaiming the fullness of truth with clarity and charity for years to come. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. This is our last segment. We have 10 minutes and our lines are open. And uh, one last time, if you wish, you have time to call in, toll-free, 1-877-511-5483, or email at mother at thestationofthecross.com. We're on a very important email sent in by Deborah. 
um, who says, Dear Mother, we began this just before the break. Recently I heard you speak about changes in the way the church presents itself. You were talking about the conversion between the conversation between Ben Shapiro and Bishop Barron. I want to make it very clear that the church has not changed the way it presents itself. The gospel is once and for all. Unfortunately, there are those within the church that misrepresent the church and that have changed personally the way they represent the church. It's false. The church has not changed. And Deborah says, so I wonder how did it come to be that any motivation, suggestion, or requirement for conversion and fidelity to our Lord become unnecessary and commonplace? How did it come to be that a bishop would tell a Jewish man that Catholicism was just a preferred way to avoid hell and get to heaven? No need to convert. It came about because Satan is in charge, because Bishop Barron could care less about his soul. Bishop Barron would argue that. That's not the case, but it is the case. There's no other gospel. There's no other name. St. Luke wrote in the book of Acts, no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Shame on Bishop Barron. He says he cares, but it's an emotional um, uh, heresy. There's no way to be saved apart from Christ. And Deborah says, here is something that has been helpful to me and perhaps might be for others. A change happened in 1967 under Pope Paul VI. The heresy of modernity was elevated within the church. The oath against modernity required of all clergy, pastors, confessors, preachers, religious superiors, professors in philosophical settings, etc., under Pope Pius X in 1910, was removed in 1967 under Paul VI. That is tragic. And Deborah says, motivation to proclaim the gospel, to encourage conversion, diminished, of course. The faithful clergy and laity are given permission to disobey what our Lord commanded. No, they're not. They do disobey at their own eternal peril. They're not given permission because something is not said. Uh, because it is not said, um, do not speak falsehood. That doesn't mean they're given permission to speak falsehood. They've taken an oath to preach the truth. They're not given permission. They take liberty to um, employ the devil's tactic. She said, this is undoubtedly simplistic, but it may offer some clarity. Abundant blessings, Deborah. Well, it, it's, it's, um, it's not just simplistic, but it's to the point. And it, it grieves me no end. So bishops, priests, cardinals, monsignors, holy father, no one has permission to preach falsehood. No one. No one. We have an email from Robert who says, Hello, Mother Miriam. I am a 52-year-old man married to my wife of 20 years this May. I have five children, three grown and two school age, and I'm struggling with the life choices of our oldest 29-year-old daughter. She has been living in a relationship with a woman for the past nine months. My wife, who has end-stage kidney failure and stage one breast cancer, wishes to see all her children as often as she can 
due to not knowing how much time she has left. Reluctantly, I agreed to have my oldest daughter and her girlfriend over to the house. The interactions were civil. Here is the issue I have. On the one hand, you should love the sinner and hate the sin. On the other hand, allowing that type of relationship in our house, in my mind, is similar to endorsing that behavior. It is. I agree. I find it similar to, if I were to say, an escort at an abortion clinic. Very good. This has been weighing heavily on my heart regarding how to respond. The scripture verse, Matthew ten twenty three says, But whoever denies me before people... Well, they changed that. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Continues to ring in my head, what should I do? Thank you in advance for your yes to consecrated life and your guidance with this, Robert. Robert, you simply explained to your daughter that um, you were uh, confused as what to do uh, the first time she invited her girlfriend. But... Uh, it is similar to someone escorting her friend to an abortion, have an abortion. It is, the, the fact is that we are supporting her uh, sinful life, a life that her and her, the girlfriend who she claims to love uh, are supporting one another on the road to hell. And if they die in their sleep, that's where they will awake. And you, you want to help them, whatever you can do, but you must not invite them over to the house as if they are a couple before God because they are not. Um, and the daughter can come. It's her mother, but not her girlfriend. And her daughter um, uh, could say, well, if my girlfriend is not welcome, I won't come either. So be it. You must live with that consequence and help your, 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 your wife to do that as well. Um, say to your wife, her soul is more important than our desire, even on our deathbed, to see our children. Because if we don't um, express to her how we love her, how we cannot support her on the road to hell, um, and she may say, you can't judge me. Say, no, I can't. I'm not judging you. I don't know your heart. Only God does. But we must judge our acts. And your act is what I'm talking about. She must not come with you as if you're a couple. She must not. Um, uh, we're not inviting our friends to our mother's side. Um, and it, it just say to your wife, sweetheart, she, we have to sacrifice for the salvation of our daughter and there's no other way she'll realize how serious this is. It's not our choice. It's God's law. We're only um, um, heartbroken to have to live what God wants before her in such a clear manner. But it's the only way to heaven. And if she refuses, that's going to be her decision. But your wife must love have a love for your daughter and her eternal salvation and put that before her desire to see all her children even before she dies. She must do that. Have the priest come over to the house, give her the anointing of the sick and explain that to your wife and also hopefully explain that to your daughter. Okay. 
we're up against the end of the program. We'll have the closing music in just a few seconds, beloved. If you hesitate to speak the truth, then you don't love the person that you um, are hedging with or fudging with. Um, Faithful are the um, uh, wounds of a friend. Um, If you don't speak the truth to those you love because you're afraid to hurt them or you're afraid of what they'll think of you, then you do not love them. You are forfeiting your opportunity, the opportunity God has given you to speak the truth and help them on their way to heaven. They might, they may cut you off, so what? You've spoken the truth and the Holy Spirit can apply it to their hearts as and when he wills. Don't ever hesitate or you yourself will be guilty before God of a tragedy. Okay, God bless you. Have a good weekend, beloved. And we'll speak with you, God willing, on Monday.